0: I love our intro video. I wonder if there are any other aging baby boomers out there that are hearing bum, 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 bum. <laughs> <laughs> well, good morning and welcome to our first weekend of five services. We now have three on Sunday and, and as you can tell if you normally appear here on Sunday, it's, it's working out great. You have a little more space. Hopefully a little more space in the parking lot, a little more space getting your kids checked in. And so we started with an 845 service, and we'll have one after this service. And so that's great. But here's the deal. We want to fill in the space because our goal is to reach people and build bridges to people who need Jesus. And uh, right now we're in a brand new series called Hope, or it's about hope. And what's really interesting about this series is that we're synced up with, with kids' world, with preschool age kids elementary age kids junior high kids and what's really great for all of you who are parents and grandparents or if you just came today with kids is you'll be actually able to discuss with them when you go home today um, the topic and the subject and of course the message you're going to hear is going to be scaled for an adult audience and our series is called lifeline which by the way I love our set and I hope none of you got a cruise planned anytime soon (laughs) we're not trying to communicate any kind of message to you go ahead and take it you'll be all right But uh, our goal is for us to be able to discuss and talk with our kids. And then this is going to be five weeks in which we explore hope. And, And the definition is going to be the same in all our environments. And so you should learn it so that when you talk to your kids, you will be able to talk to them about hope. And hope means something good can come out of something bad. Believing that something good can come out of something bad. And the reason why we feel like it's really important for us to sync up on this topic is that if our kids ever needed a message of hope, it's today. If adults and families let's just say this if families ever needed to be able to come together and share together the encouragement that good things can come out of bad things it's today our kids live in such a difficult world with technology and just all the stuff that's thrown at them today our kids have to face things that even those of you who are 25 or 30 you didn't have to face when you were a kid they're forced into a very sometimes a frightening adult world and then on top of that, just look at life itself. A lot of bad things are going to happen in life. And time and time again, you're going to be able to you're going to need to be able to embrace each other as a family and say, "We believe something good can come out of something bad." But that's not just being Pollyannish. That's not just feel-good stuff. It isn't just positive thinking. Because, see, here's the thing. If you say to me, Mark, you need to believe that something good can come out of something bad, what's the word that I'm going to ask you if you know my personality type or if you have my personality type? Why? How? How can I know that something good will come out of something bad? And that's why you and I need to understand that the biblical concept of hope is very different from the cultural concept of hope. Because if I use the word hope and I'm as guilty as anybody else... I'll use it in a sort of nebulous way in regard to the future. In other words, I have, I have positive aspirations for the future that I have no control over. I hope I get the job. I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope she'll call back. I, you know, I hope this will work. What we mean by that is we don't really know. It would be our desire for something to take place in the future. But there's no certainty. There's no sure assurance that it's going to work out. The biblical definition of hope is very different because it's much more the idea of confidence. And and I know that this may not be all that helpful to you, but it helps me to be able to separate key biblical concepts. When I look at hope in the Bible, as much as I understand it, hope is like, if you can imagine, sort of a mental picture of you and I having our hands outstretched to God. Hope and blessing are two concepts in the Bible that are inexorably tied because they're both about the future blessing is about god giving you a positive future and we had a series called bless you about a year and a half ago it's in the archives or it's at the bookstore or whatever but we were talking about the ground rules of blessing and one of the things that we learned about the ground rules of blessing is it's a good future it's a positive future that god gives to us blessing is about the future hope is about the future now here's here's how blessing and hope work together hope is when we have our hands outstretched to god saying god i need to receive something from you i have hope i have confidence blessing is god's hands stretched down to us prayer although you don't have to kneel to pray let me go ahead and do this to give you how prayer fits in prayer says while my hands are outstretched to you with expectancy god i want to talk to you about it god this is what i need and on top of that god i want to thank you for all the other things that you've placed in my hands through the years and god i just want to adore you and worship you because you're an awesome god And God, I want to tell you I'm sorry for the things that I've done wrong. While I'm here and I'm talking to you with my hands outstretched, God, I need to tell you that I I lost my temper and I said stuff I shouldn't have said. And I'm sorry for that. That's confession. But Lord, I have my hands out to you. And, And every once in a while somebody will tell me something that really makes me sad. People will say, Mark, I don't want to bother God too much. I don't want to burden God. Do you realize you have been instructed to come to God with all your needs? God has said, talk to him about everything, relationship needs, financial needs, health needs, career needs. God said, bring it all to me. See, hope is when we put our hands out to God in expectancy and we say, God, I'm asking you for this. And faith is believing that he wants to do it, that he's a good God, he's a powerful God, that in his time he will do what is best for us. But despair is when chaos intersects our lives so much that we pull our hands down And we no longer put our hands out to God in expectation because we've given up. Chaos has made us believe that something good isn't going to come out of something bad. Now you and I are either there today or we will be. We will experience chaos. I'm not talking about just your garden variety bad day. I'm saying someday you and I are going to have life spin out of control. And that's when we need to remember what today's talk is all about. That whatever happens... You need to remember Jesus' promises. In fact, that's what you're going to be talking about today. If you have a fifth grader or a fourth grader, that's what he or she is going to be talking about or learning about today. If you have a three-year-old, that's what they're going to be learning about today. And we're all going to be learning this together. That whatever happens, in fact, every week, all five weeks, our talk is going to start with those two words, whatever happens. <laughs> what do you think about when somebody says, whatever happens to you? You know, your doctor says, whatever happens. Blah, blah, blah. Or you're at work, well, whatever happens. Or how many of you have had your wife say, no, whatever happens. I don't know what you think. I think about three things. Number one, it's going to be bad. We don't say whatever happens if we're expecting good things to happen. It's going to be bad. We don't know what it is. There's a blank. That's why we use the word whatever. And what we're talking about is some sort of bottom line contingency. I mean, what we're talking about here is a lifeboat when the ship is going under. Whatever happens... There's the lifeboat. And all five five times we're going to be talking about whatever happens next week on Easter, whatever happens, God is more powerful. In fact, he's even more powerful than death. I can't wait for Easter. But today it's whatever happens, remember Jesus' promises. I want to take you back, as we will all five weeks here, to look at the last week of Jesus' life. We're going to travel with Jesus' followers. We're going to travel with Jesus from... The moments of his arrest all the way to his resurrection and what happens after his resurrection. And we're going to learn so much about hope. And we're going to learn why good things, why you can believe that good things will come out of bad. But today we want to go to those first minutes. Well, actually, let's go back even before that. I started to say let's go back to the first minutes of Jesus' arrest. But let's go back earlier than that. Jesus called 11 guys to follow him. They were not his only followers. Hundreds, if not thousands of people followed Jesus. But there were 11 guys that we would say were his posse. There were 11 guys that were his inner circle. They would eventually become apostles. They eventually would change the world. After Jesus would leave, these 11 guys would take the word of God all over the world, start churches, and basically they would give birth to what we know of as the church. (laughs) But when Jesus found them, you should understand that Jesus did not go to the grad schools or to the palace or to the think tanks to pick them up. When Jesus called his group together, he got blue-collar guys, fishermen. He went down to the docks, to guys who were cleaning their nets. They didn't have any formal education. He got fishermen, tax collectors. If you were here last week, you know that tax collectors are scum of the earth? No self-respecting person would be a tax collector. And Simon, Simon Zelotes, he was a bomb maker, a terrorist. How about that for a group? He got a bunch of of blue-collar guys, scum of the earth, tax collectors, and bomb makers. Terrorists. I mean, there was actually a point that I find humorous on, you know, when Jesus was actually making the last trip to Jerusalem, the disciples were hanging back and they were arguing with each other and they wanted to be out of earshot for Jesus, which is a really stupid thing because you can't be out of earshot of God. But in any event, they were trying to do that and they were arguing and Jesus said, what are you boys talking about back there? That's the Texas translation of the Bible. (laughs) And, And they didn't want to tell him because you know what? They had been arguing over who was the greatest. And I'm laughing about that because I'm thinking, you know a bunch of fishermen and bomb makers and tax collectors, who cares? You know. But here's the thing that you and I need to understand. For three years, they had a privilege that nobody could imagine. They lived with God. 24-7, they had God with them. Nobody, before, nobody, after has ever gotten to experience it quite like that. I mean, there he was. If they ever needed something, there was the God man. There was God in skin. And you know, whatever your issues are, if you're just like hanging with God 24-7, he just sort of makes them go away. He goes to a family wedding. They run out of punch. He turns the water into wine. He gets into a storm, walks on water. Storm comes up. He gets up and makes it go away. He goes to the grave of a friend, cries outside the grave, then calls the friend out after he's been dead four days. Can you imagine hanging with somebody who could do that? John said, I mean, after all, I mean, how many hundreds of times did they see, did, did they see him heal the blind people. Blind people would walk away sighted. Deaf people would walk away hearing. Paralyzed people would, well, they'd walk away. Hundreds of times. And here's the thing. We don't even begin to have all the stuff that Jesus did recorded. John said if all the things that Jesus did were recorded, the world wouldn't contain them. I mean, constantly, day in, day out, they just saw Jesus do the miraculous just another day at the office. I'm just trying to get you to feel what these, three guy, what these 11 guys had experienced for three years. Three years is a long time. And yeah, one more thing you and I should understand. Somewhere along the line, I don't think it happened all at the same point, but somewhere along the line, these 11 guys had become convinced that Jesus was the one that God had promised from the very beginning all the way back to the book of Genesis. God, had, I mean, our first parents screwed us all up. They, got, they fell into sin, screwed up the whole human race. God did not want to let us spin into oblivion and go into punishment. So God had promised from the very beginning, I am going to send my solution to the world. He'll be God and human at the same time be born of a virgin i mean all these promises these 11 boys grew up in, in well i started to say church but they grew up in their religious experience and their teachers had taught them wow someday somebody is coming and the bible talks about him all throughout you know micah said he'd be born in bethlehem you know he, genesis 49 says he'd be from the tribe of judah and on and on and on isaiah said he'd be born of a virgin all these dramatic promises about jesus coming into the world and at some point these 11 guys said that's him that's him the guy we're with He's the one God promised. And here's where we really need to take another step. When God promised his Savior into the world, he also made a promise that this person would be king. And since God chose Israel to bless the rest of the world, eventually this person who would come into the world, the Jewish people understood, that he would be their next king. Well, about 500 years before Jesus was born, Israel and Judah stopped having kings. But God had promised that this king would be of the lineage of David. So that's why when you open up your Bible to to Matthew and to Luke, you get Jesus' family tree. And why do you have Jesus' family tree? To prove that he has a right to the throne. So the disciples, they were not brilliant men, but they understood that clearly. They understood that Jesus came to be king. And so here's what they had in their minds. You know what he's going to do? He's going to like do all these extraordinary things. He's going to build a crowd. He's going to become very popular. And everybody's going to say, yeah, he's the king. And he's going to overthrow Rome. And we're going to be there with him. Fishermen, bomb makers, tax collectors. You know, John is saying, I'll be secretary of state. Peter said, I'll be secretary of defense. And we're going to be there. And so they're expecting this. Now, Bring yourself, if you will, please, with me to the last week of Jesus' life because if the disciples were thinking along that way, the week had to start out corroborating everything that was on their mind. Because Jesus had said to the disciples, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, I'm gonna be crucified, I'm I'm gonna die there, and the disciples are saying, not in a million years. And what made them feel even better about their position, what are we celebrating this week? What do we call this day? This is Palm Sunday. Jesus last week started, are you kidding me, with a parade, I mean, people were throwing palm branches. You know, Jesus riding in on a donkey. People were throwing palm, palm, them palm branches, throwing their coats down. I mean, they're crying out, Hosanna. And the disciples are saying, we're winning, we're winning, we're winning. Jesus is wrong. He said he was going to be crucified. Hey, we got a parade going here. We're going to win this thing. And Tuesday night, they just went over to Martha and Mary's for dinner. The Lord knows Martha could cook. And then Mary came, broke that box of perfume on jesus you know a whole year's salary worth of perfume on jesus in a second disciples were freaked out about that thought that was a waste of money and then they had passover you know they went up to that upper room that's a quiet thing you know they had passover all their lives and jesus would give them a little talk about something or other and then he did this thing with juice and bread and then they went out to a garden you know that's a sedate place in fact they all went to sleep You don't go to sleep if you think your life is about to spin out of control. I've been there. I've been there at moments where I felt that my life was about to spin out of control. The problem is, you can't sleep. For the disciples to go to sleep at this moment, they thought everything is cool. I mean, there he is. There's our captain right there. Everything is fine. We have equilibrium, we're going to have a kingdom. We have all ages at New Spring, but we tend to be a pretty young church. And I know I could be talking to some of you, and your life has never really yet gone into chaos the way that my life has on a few occasions, or some of you have experienced. So let me just make a statement, and if you've never lived this, then file it away. If your life ever descends into chaos, you won't be surprised that things go wrong. You'll be surprised how wrong, how fast, and in how many ways. I want to say that one more time. If your life ever, and I'm not, I'm not talking about a garden variety bad day, this went wrong. I'm talking about your life spins out of control. If your life ever spins out of control, you won't be surprised that things go wrong. You'll be surprised how wrong, how fast, and in how many ways. Because what the disciples did not understand was that their world was about to tank. Whatever happens, are you kidding me? It was all about to happen to them. and and things that were were going to happen they had no control over and it it was going to go from bad to worse in fact it was just going to it, it was as if the bottom were going to drop out while they were all asleep and jesus was praying unbeknownst to the disciples roman soldiers and temple police were on their way to arrest jesus And I guess the disciples sort of woke up to the noise of all these soldiers coming in. And and put yourself in their place. We know the history of it. But put yourself back in the moment with the disciples. And I think the disciples thought to themselves something like this. This is all mistake. This is just mistaken identity. But it wasn't mistaken identity because the leader of the pack was one of their own. It was Judas who went and sold Jesus out. And so the disciples were crestfallen about that. And so they were watching it go down right in front of their face. I'm sort of wondering if I have any soul brothers or soul sisters here with me today who know, and this is my story. I have a litany of stupid things I've done through the years. I mean, I've done many stupid things. But I have a whole chapter of stupid things that I have done that have been prefaced with the following statement. I need to do something. Anybody? I mean, don't don't raise your hand. And wives don't raise your husband's hands. I, I'm just saying. <laughs> a, 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 do you, have you ever said that? I mean, you don't know what to do. I mean, it's just going crazy. The world is spinning out of control, and you're saying, I don't, I just, I don't know what to do, but I got to do something. <laughs> some of you have been there. I got to date somebody. Got to marry somebody. You know, I got to take some course in college. I don't know what to do, but I'm just going to do something. Well, well, the leader of the disciples was Peter. And so Peter is watching his Lord being busted right there in front of his face. I mean, they're about to put cuffs on Peter. So Peter doesn't know what to do. And you know what? Usually when we don't know what to do and we say, I've got to do something, it's because we haven't done what we should have done to get prepared for this moment. Because Jesus had been trying to tell Peter, Peter, you need to pray. Peter kept going to sleep. So Peter, and I'm trying not to laugh because it's not a funny moment. But I cannot, the humor just sort of comes to me when I think about this. Peter reaches out and grabs his sword, and he's trying to cut somebody's head off because he's just trying to do something. But he swings the sword and read. And Peter had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. He didn't even get the guy's head. He just cut his ear off. <laughs> and on top of that, he was just a poor servant. The guy just had to be there. He didn't come to arrest Jesus. and just doing his job. Here's Peter. I want to do something. Oh, my God. off goes the guy's ear. Can you imagine Jesus' face? Peter, don't help me. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Jesus said, enough of that. And what must have really freaked everybody out? The poor guy's ears lying there on the ground. Jesus picks it up, puts it back on the guy's head. <laughs> Could you see him sort of pat it there? <laughs> I mean, Poor Jesus, I mean, he's going off to be crucified. And Peter, boom. It's Peter, just don't help me. And then they do the only thing they know to do. They just run. I mean, look at this. The Bible says that the disciples deserted him in flood. See, the thing about it is, when, when your world starts to fall apart, and it goes so wrong so fast in so many ways, and you're not prepared for the moment you know, you just try to do something, and then if it backfires, you do the only thing you know to do, you run away. I mean, how many of us have run away from things in life? I mean, some of us have run away from college. Others of us have run away from marriages. Others of us have run away from, from life because it's gone wrong, and, it's, and we don't see any good coming out of it. I'm just going to run. <laughs> Is there anything worse than that? Yeah. You run, and then you get ashamed of running, you think, well, I need to go back into the chaos and make a stand, and you go in and you make it worse. This is what Peter did. Peter said, well, I'm just going to go back in there, you know, and he didn't really help Jesus, but he was just going to go back and sort of take a stand, and then somebody comes up to him and says, hey, wait a minute, aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter's watching what's going on with Jesus, and Peter doesn't want that to happen to him. So he said, no, I don't, no, no, you've got somebody else, yet. it's not me, and then Somebody else, a little girl comes up and said, weren't you one of his disciples? And she said, and Peter said, no, no, not me. And then, this is really curious, one of the relatives of the servant whose ear Peter cut off, came up and said, didn't I see you with him, Peter? Guys, no, I don't know the man. And only Dr. Luke records this, that Jesus turned at that moment and looked at Peter So think about this. These guys' lives were just spinning out of control. And and what little they did to try to make it better just made it worse. And one thing went to another. It was just bad, 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 bad. Jesus is taken away. He's led away. He goes through several kangaroo courts. And then finally they decide to crucify him. A Roman lictor about beats him half to death, ripping the skin off his torso and back. And then they lay a Roman cross on him. And their king is led outside the city. They lay him on the cross as he stretches out his hands. They nail his hands and feet there. And for six hours, he hangs on a cross, gasping for every breath, pulling against the nails in order to get a breath, and then sinking back into the cross. And after six hours of that, he says, It's finished. And then he dies, and their leader, their king, is crucified in a trash dump. Like the very scum of the earth, his cold, dead body is hanging out there on a cross. And these 11 guys are somewhere sitting in a darkened room, frightened, scared. And they are saying to themselves the same thing. Game over. Game over. I don't know in that darkened room somewhere in Jerusalem where 11 frightened men sat huddled. I don't know if any of the guys said, what was it Jesus was trying to tell us last night? Because see, if they had, they would have remembered that Jesus gave them three chapters. Unfortunately for you and me, they're recorded for us. They are chapters 14, 15, and 16 of the book of John. This was the last talk. In fact, I've used it so many times at funerals because I think Jesus basically was preaching his own funeral to the disciples. Jesus had, had given them promises. Are you ready for this? He was giving them promises that would have rewritten their narrative. I know some of you are engineers and you're fact-oriented people like me and you just crossed your arms at that last statement. And you say, wait a minute, Mark. Nothing can rewrite a narrative. Facts are stubborn things. And I'll hand you that. I didn't mean that the promises that Jesus gave would have changed the facts. But here's the thing about the promises of Jesus. And now we're going to move to 2012 and we're going to talk about you and me who are Christ followers today. It is true that Jesus' promises do not materially change our facts, but what they do is they reinterpret our facts. Knowing the facts does not necessarily lead you to the truth. You can know facts and come to the wrong conclusion by putting the wrong interpretation on those facts. See, the disciples, they watched everything play out in front of them. They watched chaos. They watched the world go so wrong so fast in so many ways. And they said to themselves, game over. But if they had just listened to the promises of Jesus, what they would have understood was the promises of Jesus would have so reinterpreted the facts they watched play out in, there, in front of them. They would have understood they weren't losing, but rather they were winning. I want to take you now, as we close out this talk, to just three verses out of those three chapters we talked about, the three most famous. Because at the beginning of Jesus' talk, he gave these guys four promises that would have completely rearranged, the, reinterpreted the facts. And the reason why I bring this talk to you, and I would like for you to talk to your kids and grandkids about this, is that it changes our world today. Jesus started these promises by a statement to his disciples. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. A lot of us who grew up in church will remember John 14.1. Many of us remember it in the old translation. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus was saying to the disciples, look, guys, I, I know your world's about to spin out of control. They didn't know it. They weren't listening to him. But Jesus said, I know, you're, I know what you're about to go through. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, the word that Jesus used is the usual word that we find in the Greek language for stress or anxiety. This may be more than you want to know, but the word is merimna, and it's a very colorful word. It means to tear in two directions at the same time. Jesus said, guys, don't let your your minds be torn in two directions at the same time. Isn't it strange after all these years that when we find ourselves in that place, we still use that expression? Haven't we said that to people? I'm just torn. I'm just torn right down the middle. what What are we saying when we're saying we're torn? We're saying we're frozen. We don't know what to do. We're just torn. And that's what Jesus said, guys, don't be frozen. I mean, when, when all this goes wrong, when all this goes south, and let's just say not disciples, let's talk to you and me today. God is saying, Mark, when everything goes wrong, don't let your mind be torn. And then four promises that reinterpret the facts. Number one, let's look at it. Verse one, Jesus said, you trust God, trust me. The first promise, it may not sound like a promise to you, but to me it's one of my favorite promises in the Bible. In fact, every time I read it, it's like just peace sweeps over me. Jesus said, you can trust me. Could I say that to you? You can trust Jesus. And don't you find it interesting, Christ followers, those of you who, who love God and have followed Jesus for a long time, here were the disciples after three years, the world was about to spin under control. Don't you find it interesting that Jesus took them back to the very place where the relationship with him began? Because what is the relationship with God? It is putting trust in God. That's the only thing you can give God. You can't give him money because he owns all the money. You can't give him anything material he owns it all. The one thing God doesn't own that you can give him is your confidence and your trust. And so Jesus said to the disciples, you can trust me. To you who are going through chaos right now and to you who will, I'm telling you that you have a promise from Jesus that says you can trust me. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm finding it harder and harder to find people in the world that I can trust. You know, if a delivery person says they'll have it at your house between three and five. (laughs) And, And that's simple. But others of you have had it in much more important applications because you stood at an altar and somebody said, you can trust me. And in our world today, you know, in my grandfather's generation, a handshake was a deal. A man's word or a woman's word was his or her bond. But but today, the sharpest person is a person who can tell a good lie and apologize with sincerity. And then even oftentimes people that make commitments to us intend good things toward us, but for some reason, either through human frailty or through issues of life, they're unable to keep their word. And I think that Broken promises that many of us have entertained, the broken promises that we receive from people sometimes, that gets transferred over into our relationship with God. And we sort of feel like if God makes us a promise, maybe he'll follow through, maybe he won't follow through. But Jesus was saying, guys, you can trust me. And this is the best way I can say it. A promise from God is a material asset. I learned something when I was getting ready for this talk and and Lord knows if there was ever a talk I need to listen to five times, it's this one because I struggle with anxiety. Why does the Bible keep harping on faith? Faith, 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 faith. Abraham, I mean, faith all over the Old Testament. Faith all over the New Testament. How do I get into heaven? Faith. How do I live as a Christian? Faith. I mean, if you ever read the Bible, it's all over the Bible. Faith, 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 faith. Why is faith so important? All right, you know, how to do it. you know how to keep a checkbook? Or you know how to do a basic accounting? You got money going out, you got bills, and you got money coming in, hopefully. Now, many of you, when you were doing your accounting this week, you were doing your accounting on Wednesday or Thursday, and you had bills to pay, and you had money going out. And you got paid on Friday, perhaps, and that's when your check was coming in. But the thing is, when you were doing your accounting, you went ahead and factored in your paycheck, even though you hadn't got it yet, because you were pretty sure it was going to come in. So you went ahead and ran a balance, you know what was going out? You know what you expect to come in? You run a balance. If you're, in a, if you're at high-level accounting, you got payables and receivables, or you have billables. Do you know what anxiety comes from? Somebody like me who deals with anxiety and bites his fingernails all the time, do you know what my problem is? All I'm thinking about is all my problems and my issues, and I don't go ahead and factor in the promises of God. Faith is looking at all my problems factoring in the promises of God and going ahead and running a balance and saying I am where I am with my issues factoring in the promises of God since God never fails to keep his word I'm going to go ahead and run a balance here and I'm going to live my life this way and Jesus was saying guys if you just listen to me you're about to head into chaos but we're not losing here we're winning you can trust me okay second thing second promise there's plenty of room for you in my father's house Disciples were going to pieces because their kingdom was going up in smoke. The king is dead, gray, cold, hanging on a Roman cross out there. It's over. Game over. And Jesus was saying to them, guys, in my father's house, there's plenty of room. And he, Jesus was saying to them, the kingdom isn't here. Get your expectations up. And here's a very big one. The third promise. I want you to look at this. This is such a powerful verse. Jesus said, I'm gonna go over here because I wanna point out a word. Jesus said, I am going there to prepare a place for you. The important word is to. Because when the disciples saw Jesus dragged away and crucified, they thought, there's no purpose to this. There's nothing good that can come out of this. And Jesus said, Listen, guys, let me explain to you. I'm not being dragged away, I'm going away. I'm in control here. And I'm going to my Father. And all that's about to take place, the crucifixion, the burial, and all that, and the resurrection, all this is about me going to prepare a place for you. Okay, here is something hard to put our arms around. First of all, let me ask you a question. Please don't respond to me in any way visibly, but I want to ask you a question. Do you, have, do you believe in Jesus? Are you a Christ follower? Even the bad things that happen in your life, God will use to bless you. A very clear distinction. God is not behind the bad things in our world. It's a broken world. Seven billion people with sin natures. A lot of bad things happen. It's a broken world. God's not behind the bad things. Every once in a while, somebody will say, Well, it's God's will, you know. Somebody will have a tragic accident. But some terrible thing happened. They'll say, It's just God's will. No, it's not God's will. God never wanted bad things to happen. But you remember this. God can take all the bad events of your life and he can weave them into a tapestry of blessing. And nothing bad that happens to you will go unused by the one who is totally in charge and has your destiny in his hands. (laughs) Jesus said, guys, all this chaos that you're about to experience is for you. I'm doing this. I am going to prepare a place for you. And now promise number four. Jesus said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. That where I am, you may be also, or you may be where I am. Someday. Your world is going to spin out of control. And those hands that you have up in expectation from God, you might be tempted to pull them down and say, I think God has left me. I don't see God in my life anymore. Has God abandoned me? Does God not love me anymore? You may be there right now. Because as I said, you know, when things go wrong, it's not that they go wrong, it's how wrong, how, how fast, and how many ways. And you may be there right now, and, and it could be that you've already pulled your hands down, and you're just saying, I'm not going to put my hands up to God anymore because I don't think I can trust Him. See, we have a really hard time with something the disciples had a hard time with. And frankly, this is what left them vulnerable, and it leaves us vulnerable. In fact, I think as Americans in the 21st century were more vulnerable than anybody else in history, except for maybe the disciples. I mean, you think about this. The disciples were thinking, we got the world going on. We got God right here with us. Anything goes wrong? We have heaven on earth. We Americans and I know we may not feel this way today but we are so blessed. We're so well off. You know what? Diseases that killed children in previous generations, we have we have vaccinations. We don't even have to deal with those issues. Do you know there were infections that killed our ancestors. We don't even have we just go to the doctor, get a prescription, in 3 days we're feeling better. I mean, food, are you kidding me? we got all kinds of food. As I always joke with you, we eat better Chinese food than Chinese. We eat better Mexican food than the Mexicans. We're not worried about a place to sleep tonight. Most of us have a place for our car to sleep. Many of us have two car garages and three car garages, and we would have our cars in our garages if we didn't have so much stuff that we can't put our cars in the (laughs) garages. Here's the problem. At its best, If we just had a few things fixed, we could have heaven on earth, couldn't we? And so when we pray, when we think about a relationship with God, our idea is if we could just get God to move to Andover, (laughs) if I could just get God to move to Wichita, to Bel Air, to Newton, to Manridge, God, if I could just get you to move to my house and stay with me, God, if you could just fix these few things that are broken, I would have heaven on earth. God, if you could just fix my husband, I know it's big, but if you could fix my husband, I'd have heaven on earth. God, if you could just restore sanity to my teenager, I could have heaven on earth. No, you would. If you could get Jesus to move into your house, you'd still get old, still die, still live in a world of seven billion people with sin natures. You ready for this? The disciples had to learn what you and I need to learn in 2012. The important thing is not to get God where we are. The important thing is for God to get us where he is. And Jesus said, fellas, I know this looks like chaos, but you trust me. And there's plenty of room for you in my father's house. And I'm doing this for you. And the important thing is I need to get you to where I am. And where I'm, the reason I'm going to a cross is to pay for your sin that keeps you out of heaven. And I'm going to rise from the grave three days later and walk out under my own powers, King of kings and Lord of lords, and I'm going to get you there. Just trust me, I'm going to get you there. And that's what he's saying to you and me today. That's why we can put our arms around our kids today and say, you know what, we believe good things can come out of bad. Why? Because he's in control. And no matter what happens, You remember his promises. You just do the accounting, and you draw the bottom line. And you know what the funny thing at that point is? You're ready, you're ready to live at that point. You can live all out. You can live with nothing to fear. You can live with everything. You can enjoy every day, because nothing can rock your world in a negative way that he cannot take care of and take charge. And you know what? Even if the worst happens, we're going to where he is. I love that. You know, I want to close by saying this. It could be that you're here today and you said, Mark, I love all this stuff, but I don't really know. I've had religion in my life or I've been taught some things in church, but I don't really know that I have the kind of relationship with God. I want to take you back to one comment. Do you remember there was a point in the talk today where I said the only thing you can give God is your trust? Did you know that is the only way you can get into heaven? Because the only thing that God does not have at his beck and call is your trust. He owns everything else. But because he made you a free person, you know, what's, what's love if you can make somebody love you? It isn't real love, is it? When somebody loves you, you want them to love you because it's in their heart. And that is why God made every human being with a free choice. So the one thing that God does not own is your trust. And that's why the only thing that can get you into heaven is for you to take your heart and give it to him and to trust him did you know that's what he wants from you more than anything else it's the only thing you can give him and if you'd like to have a relationship with Jesus the risen son of god you can have it today not by joining new spring church the lord knows i love new spring church not by being baptized not by going to catechism not even by being a good person You can get into a relationship with Jesus by taking the only thing he doesn't own and putting it at his feet and say, Lord, here's my trust. Would you pray right now with me? I mean, these aren't magic words, but these are words that by faith do exactly what I'm talking about. And I'll pray slowly because the important thing is what you mean in your heart. You ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, But I believe you died for me, and I believe you rose from the grave, and today I give you my heart. The one thing you don't own is now yours. I give you my trust. I put all my confidence in you. I receive you as my Savior and King, in Jesus' name.